0: Welcome again, Lakeshore. We're so glad that you're here today. We want to welcome those at our Smyrna campus. We're so glad you're with us on this 10-year anniversary of this location. Uh, we welcome those who are connecting with us online. We're glad that you've joined us today as well. Uh, we are in a series called Three Days That Changed the World. Uh, you may have heard about uh, this guy. Uh, his wife was concerned about his health. He seemed to be having a lot of health problems. And so she went with him uh, to the doctor, made the appointment, uh, convinced him to go. And he went back, while they got to the doctor's office, she waited outside, he went back for the exam, and a little while later, the doctor came out with him and uh, had him take a seat in the waiting room and asked the wife to come back so he could talk to her. So he got the wife back there by herself, and he said, listen, your husband is suffering from a very rare disease, and stress accelerates it, it makes it that much worse, If you don't do the following, your husband is certainly going to die. Here's what you got to do. Each morning, fix him a healthy breakfast. Be pleasant all the time. Make sure he's in a good mood. For lunch, make him a nutritious meal. For dinner, prepare an especially nice meal for him. Don't burden him with any chores or jobs as he's probably had a hard day. Don't discuss your problems with him. and It'll only make his stress worse. And most importantly, satisfy his every whim. If you can do this for the next 10 months to a year, I think your husband will regain his health completely. The wife came back out, didn't say a word to her husband. He was really worried now. They got in the car, started driving home. She hasn't said a word. He's wondering, what in the world did the doctor say to her? Finally, he got up the nerve to ask her, what did the doctor say? And she looked right at him and said, he said, you're going to die. We all face death differently, don't we? And this series we're talking about, three days that changed the world, are really focused on that time of the death and the burial and the resurrection. It's based from this passage we've looked at from the very beginning. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 1, where he says this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you were saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. Okay, this is the most important thing he says. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Today is traditionally Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday where the church has traditionally remembered that time where Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem. Remember, at the beginning of the week, he enters into the city. They wave the palm leaves and put their cloaks on the path in front of him and and cry out, Hosanna to the king as he rode in on a donkey. But during that week, the whole tide of public opinion began to change because of the work of the Jewish religious leaders getting people to turn away from Jesus. And we focus in this series especially on those three days at the end of the week. Those three days that changed everything. We started out by looking at his death on the cross. And we, we last week, talked about how they buried him and how it was obvious that he was dead. Today we're going to focus on what I've given it a new name. I don't know if this will catch on or not. Okay, you heard of Good Friday. And Easter Sunday, I'm calling this Silent Saturday, Silent Saturday, because this was a day where they didn't hear from God at all, and it was probably the hardest day of all the days for the disciples as far as their psyche goes, as far as their thinking and their emotional state was going. They had just watched the one they put all their hopes in be killed on that cross and now they've seen him his body dead body be put into a tomb and they had to be asking what now what now have you ever had days like that where something so terrible has happened something that has so rocked you to the core that you are just sitting there stunned wondering what now Where's God in all of this? Why is it God doing something? It's like he doesn't even hear me. It's like he's not even aware of what's going on. I'm sure these disciples had to be wondering, where was God in all of this? So today I want us to focus on three things that that I believe really capture this feeling that they had on Silent Saturday. The first thing is the response to his death. Like I said earlier, people respond differently to death, don't they? And and different cultures have different traditions. Uh, As a pastor, I'm around this a lot at funerals. And one of the things that we do a lot of times in our culture is we have this viewing, this visitation time, right? And a lot of times it's an open casket viewing. And people will walk by and sometimes I hear some of the funniest comments. And to me, one of the ones that to me is the most humorous is when we say they look so natural. <laughs> I'm thinking, no, they don't. <laughs> they look dead. <laughs> they look, don't look natural at all. Naturally, they'd be fussing about something or they'd be laughing about something or they'd be talking your ear. That, they don't look natural at all. Uh, there were these three guys that were talking about What they wanted people to say. They said, well, you're going to have a viewing at your funeral. You got it planned? They all said, yeah. I said, well, what do you want people to say when they pass by your casket and look at you? One of them said, well, I hope they'll say uh, he was a really good businessman and he helped out the community a lot and he he did good for a lot of people. I said, yeah, that's good. The other one said, well, I hope they say about me that I was a good husband and father. I did a good job taking care of my family. The third one said, well, you know what I want them to say about me? Look, he's moving. (laughs) because that's a hard time right and I've been in there with families when they close the casket and there's something about the finality of that right when you close the casket sometimes it really hits them when you go out to the graveside and the hole's been dug and they've got the casket you know up on that stand there and then At the end of the service, we say the prayer and say, God bless you, and we'll be praying for you. And then what do they do? They let that casket down to the ground. And then they either take shovels or sometimes now they use a machine and they just put the dirt in on top of the casket. And it's like that finality hits. That's death, and death is final, isn't it? You're not going to see them again. You know that. And you have to remember, these disciples loved Jesus very much. They had left everything to follow Jesus. And they had put all their hopes and their dreams into Jesus being the one they thought he was, the Messiah. And they thought the Messiah would never have allowed himself to be killed like this. And now they see that he's dead. Let's pick up in... In this passage, and we're going to see where in Matthew 27, beginning with verse uh, 57, uh, we'll pick back up where we were last week with what happened when he died on the cross. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked Jesus for, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. I mean, what else are you going to do? They buried him. That's what you do with a dead body. And that culture, oftentimes, they would use a tomb. Uh, they they lived on these hillsides these rocky hillsides and they would carve into that hillside a a cave like tomb uh, and it would only have one way in and one way out and then they would seal it off with a stone in front of it for a lot of reasons. One was they had grave robbers back then too and they certainly didn't want anybody going in there and messing with anything and messing with the body but also because uh, the way they preserved the bodies the, the decay would set in very quickly in that climate and the odor would be terrible so they would seal it off to keep that That odor from being there, is the body decayed there, there? There were a lot of reasons they did that. But when you rolled the stone in front of the tomb, it was saying, that's it. That's the end. Death has done its work. And when death does its work, that's final, isn't it? We've been to a lot of cemeteries. We've been to a lot of funerals. We know that's it and we know we all face that one day every one of us and the finality of that really hits you when the casket is closed or the dirt is put over the grave or the rock is rolled in front of the entrance to the tomb it really sets in then what has happened and I'm sure they were all devastated At that point, these people who loved Jesus and had been following Jesus. So they buried him, but the next thing we see happening through this process was they also attended to him and his body. Let's pick back up here a little earlier in verse 55. It says many women were there when Jesus was crucified, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. So why were they there? They were there to take care of Jesus, to help him out with whatever he needed. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Joseph the mother of Zebedee's sons. If you skip ahead after Joseph gets the body, it says in verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. When they put that body in there and they rolled that stone on it, those two women were right there at the tomb watching that happen see they had been with Jesus all the way through and they were paying their respects and trying to show honor and attend to the body of Jesus when he died I've been there at the time of death for a lot of people I was there with my mom when she died and one of the first things you do is attend to the body you, you take care of it you want it to be treated with honor right and dignity and respect like we did with my mom and like you've done with your loved ones it's it's something you do because of love that you want to take care of that person's body now we know the person's not there we understand we know intellectually but we've been connected to that person in that body their whole lives that's how we know them that's that's the connection we have with them. So there is that feeling of that's the person that we're taking care of, that, that we're honoring that way. And that's what they were trying to do for Jesus. Jesus had, all through his ministry, done something that no other teacher of his time had done. He had elevated women and the status of women and the way women were treated and honored And the way he said the kingdom of God was supposed to work. You see, in that culture, women were really second-class citizens. They didn't have the same rights as men. They didn't have the same opportunities as men. And I know even women uh, old enough here in our country today can remember when it was more that way in our country too. And it's still somewhat that way in some areas of our culture where they don't get the same respect, the same honor the same treatment as men might get. Jesus all through his ministry had changed that. Had taught differently. Had set a different example than that. You remember uh, these different women that he encountered along the way? The woman at the well in Samaria, remember? Remember? Jesus showed her honor and respect and and engaged in conversation with her in a public place where nobody else would do that. None of the other disciples took the time or made the effort to do that, but Jesus did. He set that example for them. Don't you think that meant something to the women of his day, that Jesus was doing that for them? It wasn't just her, There there were others along the way, the woman who had the health problem with the bleeding and just touched the hem of his garment and he stopped everything and ministered to her. Remember? Showing her honor and dignity and respect. The sinful woman who had washed his feet. Remember? We talked about her last week a little bit. The other people were appalled that she would be allowed in there to do what she was doing. But Jesus said she's setting a great example for you guys that you ought to be looking at and listening to. Showed her honor and welcomed her into his presence. The woman caught in adultery. Remember they brought her to Jesus? What does the law say? She should be stoned, right? What did Jesus do? He said, where are your accusers? And they had all gone away. And he says, well, I don't condemn you either. But here's the thing. I want you to go and change your life. Don't keep on sinning like this anymore. her dignity and honor and respect. And gave her a chance to have a better life. And now when Jesus' body is taken off that cross, there's a group of women there who understand the power in what Jesus had been doing in his ministry how he was teaching something radically different than his culture had been saying about how women ought to be treated in their culture. Something that the church needs to emulate, right? Because we represent Jesus in the world. And, and so they are there attending to Him. It wasn't just Joseph and Nicodemus who was with Him. They were there attending to the body, but also this group of women were there attending to Jesus. Remember, it was the women who came back to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning and were there to, to attend to the body even more. They were the first ones to find that the tomb was empty. It was these women, not these disciples that had all the teaching that should have brought them there. It was the women who came to the tomb. Well, They attended to him, and there was something else that happened that was really different than most of the burials of that day. They guarded him. They guarded the tomb of a dead man. Let's pick up in verse 62. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that, what's the word they use? Deceiver said, talking about Jesus, After three days, I will rise again. Now, let's stop there for a minute. Who are the people that remembered what Jesus said? The very enemies who nailed him to the cross. They remembered specifically that Jesus said in three days he would rise again. None of his disciples we have any record of Remembering those words and sharing those words and, and, and trying to, to think maybe that's something that's going to happen here. We don't have any record of any of them. In fact, the record we have of them is they're hiding right now. Behind locked doors. Fearful of their own lives. Now, as enemies don't say these words because they believe them. They say these words because they think, well, there could be this huge deception. Right? Because they think of him as a deceiver. If we don't take care of this so in verse 64 they said give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day otherwise here was their thinking his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he had been raised from the dead this last deception will be worse than the first what was the first deception? That he was the Messiah, that, that, that he, he was the Savior, that he was the, the one that the Jews were looking for. That was a terrible deception in their eyes. And now they're saying, if, if we let him get by with this, it's going to be even worse than that deception that he tried to bring on to the people. Okay? So here's what Pilate does. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb, listen to these words, as secure as you know how. Now, when Pilate says take a guard, most scholars agree that the word that is used there is uh, a word that means a guard unit, not just one guard. Okay, And guard units for the Roman army at the time would be usually up to 16 people who would work together as a unit, as a guard unit, 16 soldiers as a guard unit and the best military force in the world at that time. So Pilate says, you could take a guard and go there. Now, it's also possible that they included some of the Jewish temple guard in this force as well. Because they were concerned about themselves, right? So they wanted to be sure their interests were protected. So they likely could have taken some of their own temple guards. Uh, At the temple, they would have, you know how we have security guards at, at important places? You know, and undercover Secret Service people around, to, you know, we have a safety team here at Lakeshore uh, every Sunday, and at events that we have who are, who are watching, trying to make sure it's safe here, because bad things can happen anywhere, and, and, and they had that at the temple in that day, too, so it's quite possible they took some of their temple guard there to the tomb as well, but we know for sure they had some Roman soldiers there because of the record we have about what happens later, and these guards, and what they had experienced at the tomb so they took this guard but but I love the orders Pilate who's the one in charge of that region says take a guard unit from the best army in the world and make the tomb as secure as you can so they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard somebody has said that's the most pathetic effort ever known to man trying to make that tomb as secure As human beings could make it they had the best force in the world now here's what some scholars have said well the disciples have already gotten the body out before then let me tell you how unreasonable that is because the Roman Guard unit was sent there to secure the tomb and make sure nothing happened to the body do you think they might have checked to be sure they were securing a body that was in there When they are the top military force in the world and they have an order to make sure that nothing happens to that body. Don't you think they made sure that body was there when they went to guard that tomb? I mean, they would have have been very inept soldiers had they not taken that step. Here's what you need to know too. If they failed in their duties in the Roman army, you know what could happen to them? They could be executed if they failed in their duties. They could be killed for that. I think I would have made sure we had a body in there, don't you? And that we were going to make sure nothing happened to that body. So so they guarded that tomb. And it says that they put a seal on the tomb, which means they probably had opened it, put it back, and now they want to make sure they can... They can make certain nobody's messed with it. And one way they did that was to put a seal on there. It was usually a wax seal or a clay seal that they would put around the crevice. You know, when you put a stone in front of it, it wouldn't be sealed completely. There would be little gaps there. And they would fill in those gaps with wax or with clay. So here's what they would do. And they would put the seal of Pilate and the Roman government on in that wax or in that clay. To show it was by order of Rome... that that tomb had been sealed which meant that if anybody messed with it they would be under the law of Rome they could be executed too that's how serious this was now the seal was also put there because they could easily then tell if somebody tampered with the grave I mean if anybody moved that stone what would happen to the seal It would be broken. It would be cracked open. And they could tell without any shadow of a doubt that somebody messed with it. So this theory that the disciples snuck there later on and got the body out is one of the most ridiculous theories you could ever hear trying to explain away the empty tomb. They took every precaution you could take to be sure that they had this tomb protected from anybody coming in and doing anything with that body. So... After they rolled the stone in front of the tomb, they put that seal on it. Here's what happened then. Nothing. Silence. The disciples are behind locked doors. The women saw the body put in there. Now they've gone home. And they don't hear anything. Now I want to close today with what I believe are three life lessons that we need to learn from Silent Saturday. Three life lessons from Silent Saturday. Because all of us are going to have some hours, some days, some weeks, maybe even you feel like some years where you don't think you're hearing from God. And you don't know why. And what you're going to be tempted to think is, God's not doing anything because I'm not hearing anything from God. You know what it's like when you don't hear anything and you're concerned about something and you're still not hearing anything, how it can drive you crazy? Not that this has ever happened to me, but let's say you're a parent of a teenager and they've just started driving and they have to go somewhere and it's rainy and you say, be sure and call me when you get there. Text me when you get there. And you think it's been more than enough time and you haven't gotten the text. And you haven't gotten the call. What's going on in your head? A multi-car collision with multiple deaths. And, you know, the car's flipped over. in a It's obviously the car's flipped over. That's why he couldn't text me, right? Because the car's, and he's unconscious or he's dead. And that's why I haven't gotten the text. Your mind goes there, doesn't it? But it's even worse when you think you're not hearing from God when you ought to be hearing from God. Your mind just goes everywhere. Satan loves to whisper in your ear at those times, on those silent Saturdays. You know what he was probably whispering to those disciples? You were wrong. You were fools to put your trust in this guy. I mean, look at how he's failed you. You left your homes, you left your families, you left your jobs and careers to go follow this guy. And now where is he? Right? He's in the tomb. The body is rotting. And you had put all your hope in him. Satan loves to whisper those doubts, those deceptions into our ears when we're not hearing from God the way we want to hear from God. But friends, understand that just because God is silent doesn't mean He's not doing anything. Just because you're not hearing from God doesn't mean God is not at work accomplishing what He promised He would do. A lot of times I don't hear from someone when I think I ought to hear from them, but they've been doing what they were supposed to be doing the whole time, right? That's the way God is. You may not be hearing from Him, but He's allowing you to have some space there To build your trust and your faith and your confidence in Him. So three life lessons. The first one is this. Be realistic as you go through life here on this earth as a Christ follower. By that I mean understand that just because you're following Jesus doesn't mean there aren't going to be hard days. There's not going to be any trouble. There's not going to be any tragedy. There's not going to be any difficulty just because you're following Jesus. He's never taught that. It's nowhere in the scriptures where it says everything's going to go well because you're following Jesus now. Nowhere is that ever taught. Now, don't get me wrong. There's some health and wealth pastors teaching that. But that's not in scripture anywhere. Okay, He's never said he's going to make you wealthy. He's never even said he's going to keep you healthy all the time. He's never promised that. Not on this earth, not in this life. Remember, Jesus did say in John 16, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have, what is it? Trouble. But take heart. Here's how you can be, be confident even in those times. Take heart. I have overcome the world. You know, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You know what things he's just told them? He's just told them, I'm going to have to leave you for a while. And you're going to be afraid. And, and you're going to be at a loss. You're not going to hear from me from a little, for a little while. He's told him that ahead of time. But he said, then you're going to see me again. And everything's going to be great. And you're going to celebrate. And it's going to be wonderful. He said, I've told you these things in advance because you're going to have some silent Saturdays in between. You're going to have some struggles. You're going to have some losses, some hurts. And I don't want you to lose hope when that happens. Because you're going to see me again, and next time it's going to be better than ever before. Because I've overcome the world then. I've overcome sin. I've overcome death. I've overcome everything in this world that's bad that you're having to deal with. At that point, I will have overcome all of that for you. So take heart. You can have peace, even on Silent Saturday, even when you're not hearing from God. One of the things that has helped me the most as a parent is to realize my kids aren't my kids. They belong to God. I'm going to teach them the best I can, set a good example. My grandchildren, they're not mine. They belong to God. You know what I know? God's got them. I know anything could happen, but God's got them. I have to trust Him. Anything could happen at my job. I could lose it tomorrow. So could you. God's got that too. Anything could happen in your marriage. there could be a failure, there could be a problem there. Who still got that? God still got that. And even when you're not hearing from God on those silent Saturdays, God's got that too. He's still working, still doing what He needs to do. So the first thing we need to know is we need to be realistic in the Christian life and stop. Giving up on God every time it gets hard or we don't hear from him the way we want to hear from him. That does not mean in any way God has abandoned you. He has not. He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And you can trust God on that. Well, the second thing we need to do then and learn from this is to be patient then in the meantime. Be patient. I love Psalm 27, 14, and this phrase is repeated over and over again in Scripture. It says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and take heart, and wait for the Lord. And and a lot of times we take that command, we take that instruction, and we misunderstand what he means by waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord does not mean sit there like a knot on a log and do nothing. That's not what it means to wait on the Lord. I like that knot on a log thing, that's... When I was growing up, I had a guy that said that to me that I worked for all the time. It means stay the course. Hold on. Keep moving the direction God wants you to be moving and stay the course. That's what it means to wait on the Lord. It doesn't mean sit there and do nothing. It means keep doing the right things. Even when you're not hearing from God even when you're not feeling like it, even when you're emotionally not into it, you just keep walking in obedience anyway. Because when you do that, you will see the deliverance of God. One of my favorite Old Testament stories, of course, is when Moses brings the Israelites out of Egypt, and they've been there for hundreds of years as slaves, and now Pharaoh sets them free, and they're, they're leaving the, the Egypt, and they're, they're going to the land of promise. And shortly after they start their journey, what do they come up on? The Red Sea. And these people that were cheering for Moses, 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 he's our man, right? Now are saying, Moses, what in the world were you thinking? You brought us out of Egypt just to die out here in the desert. Can't believe you did this to us, Moses. We Here's how crazy it was. They said we were better off back in Egypt. What did they do the whole time they were slaves in Egypt? Complain about how awful it was, right? But now all of a sudden we would have been better off in Egypt than to be out here dying in the desert because we've got the sea here, we can't get across and... Pharaoh's army, you know, was pursuing them at the time and they could see the army coming and they were thinking we're going to die out here in the desert. But God encouraged Moses to stand up and hold up the rod and call for the power of God and the seas parted and they went across on the dry land. You see... They thought God was being silent, didn't they? They thought they came out there and it was their silent Saturday where God wasn't going to do anything. But God said, this day, these Egyptians that you see that look so powerful, you're going to see them destroyed. They're going to be buried in the depth of the sea. And what did they see before that day was over? They were on the other side safely and the Egyptian army that was pursuing them was destroyed. You see, that's how God can turn it around at the end of your silent Saturday. That's how he can change everything when the timing is his timing for that to happen. So that leads to the last thing, and that is be faithful on your silent Saturdays. Be faithful when you're not hearing from God I think a lot of us love Romans 8:28 it says this we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to his purpose Now this promise is only for certain people it's for the people who do what? Who love God and who listen to the call of God in their lives Okay? Only these people have that promise. Sometimes people who don't love God and don't want to follow God ask me, you know, they want me to say, everything's good, God's bringing some good out of this, and I can tell them honestly, He's not going to bring good out of it until you do what? Until you decide to follow Him. Then you've got this promise in your life. You've got to determine for yourself, are you going to love and follow God or not? Because if you're not, you can't claim this promise for your life. But for those of us who love God and who are making that decision to follow him and his call on our lives, that we can know that in all things he works for our good. And what things does he work for our good? All things. The hard things? The things that hurt? The silent Saturdays in our lives? All things. God works for our good. He doesn't say all things are good. He says God does what? He works for our good in all things. Death's not good. It's not even what God wanted for us. That was never what God intended for us. We brought death because of sin. We're the ones who brought death into the picture, not God. We did that to ourselves. That's not a good thing. That's why God did what he did on that silent Saturday to let his son be laying in that tomb, paying for our sin. Because he was bringing good out of all things for those who would love him and who would listen to his call in their lives. You see, God's rewards are not always immediate, but they are sure. His silence does not indicate a lack of love or a lack of interest or a lack of power or a lack of work. It only represents his timing and his purpose to do something good for those who love him. That's all it is. It's a time when he's working behind the scenes for the good of those who would hold on to their love for Him and continue to follow Him. Let's pray together. Father, Father, we know that as we remember that silent Saturday, in the middle of that death, burial, and resurrection when it seemed like all hope was lost, when it seemed like they weren't hearing from you at all, and they were wondering where you were and what was happening, even then, your power was at work to conquer sin in the grave. But you had to do it according to your plan and your timing for it. And you had prepared their hearts with the intent that they would hold on to their faith long enough that when they when they came to that tomb on that third day, they would see that you had kept your promise and that Jesus had risen and conquered sin. And that in him they had every reason to put all of their hope. Father, if there's anyone here today who who has questioned where you are in the middle of whatever they're going through, may they remember today that you are there even when they don't hear you or feel you, or sense your presence, you've not left, you're right there. But what you're looking for is the kind of love, and the kind of faith, the kind of trust that would still look to you as their source of hope. And if there's one here today who's ready to give their heart and their hope to you, then I pray that they would take that step today in the name of Jesus. Amen.